The following is a conversation with Dr. Kiran Gayamela, who is a postdoc at the IDSS at MIT. He uh, has previously uh, worked in Finland when he, where he did his PhD and in Switzerland and uh, many other places. He did uh, his uh, bachelor from, uh, uh, from IIT Hyderabad. And he, yeah, so he's worked uh, at Yahoo and many other places. And uh, uh, his most recent project, as far as I have understood, was on uh, misinformation uh, on WhatsApp uh, in the form of image sharing. Uh, and uh, to analyze that, he has used NLP methods, uh, and his his background is in in uh, graph uh, mining and uh, CS. Of course, it was an honor for me to be able to speak with him. I saw your presentation that was uploaded by Llama AI. I hope that I pronounced that correctly. So you mentioned that you used hashing in your uh, project, uh, WhatsApp uh, project in uh, India. So does that mean that you gave different expressions, different hash codes? Yeah, yeah. So there's this concept of so just to give you a background of the the project. So this is about so we got a lot of data from WhatsApp and WhatsApp is this like chat application and and based on a mobile. So there's lots of uh, images and video and like lots of multimedia. So one of the challenges you know when working for like to identify things like misinformation are uh, you know what content is there like just to get a sense because there's millions of images or billions of images on there. And we really need to know, you know, what is this content? And so we need some way to kind of uh, mathematically represent images and video and audio and, you know, all sorts of multimedia. And one way of doing that is this uh, sort of hashing, which just, you know, takes an image, gives you a random string of numbers, right? Like, so it's very uh, uh, simple, normal hashing. But then the special property of some of the hashing that we're using is, uh, is that similar images have similar hashes. So if... Uh, if there are two images which are very similar, so uh, you know they are taken at the same time, but you know one of them has some like a watermark added or cropped uh, specifically or rotated or you know some of these minor changes made, these hashes will have similar properties. So it's not uh, so the codes are not completely random in your case. Yeah, exactly. So that's the difference. So it's not a completely random hash, but these are what are called perceptual hashes where. If you give them similar images, it will produce similar hashes. And and the hashing is like very uh, like intuitively, it's just you know sampling of uh, points on the image and then you know converting that to a to a string and then you know concatenating the string from random points. Yeah. Okay, so if it's so so, so this could be expanded expanded upon. So if you uh, let's say you could you can make it even more structured. You can make the code even more structured. Now, what do you think about you know, when, when when making hash codes for 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 statements uh, on, for example, WhatsApp or Twitter or any other platform, uh, do you think it would be it could be a good idea or a, an exciting idea to to you know include in the actual encoding which type of argument the statement is uh, containing, such as, such as you know if it's containing an inductive argument or deductive argument. Yeah, what, what, what do you think about the potential of that? Sure, yeah, definitely. So there's this huge field in natural language processing that deals with like text that does exactly this sort of like all sorts of uh, these uh, embedding techniques are basically just hashing, right? Like they take the, the text to produce a vector representation, which is one type of hash. And the, the properties of those is to capture these sorts of intrinsic meaning that is encoded in these, uh, in these texts. So a lot of work is being done in you know, encoding 
uh, or finding vector representations of different types of objects. So images, you have one type of hashing. Uh, text, there are like a million types of hashing, and you know, there's Wertovec, there's also sort of like Bert and Elmo and these kinds of stuff. And yeah, so these are all doing exactly the same. It's hashing, but then supercharged. Uh, context specific, they really want to encode uh, some of these uh, specific details that they want to encode. Okay, so do right now it's uh, NLP isn't isn't used that much in 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 philosophy, for example. So uh, when I when I think about um, Bert and I think about word to work, I uh, you know th th that kind of encoding reminds me reminds me of Gödel encoding, and in Gödel encoding. Uh, that was used for yeah, in the field of philosophy in the, in um, you could call it methodologic or you could call it you know the philosophy of mathematics. So uh, and similarly, I I would uh, or, or in my I was pops up in my mind is that we could use this kind of encoding NLP encoding in in like traditional philosophy. What do you think about that? Um, do you have some like, examples in mind? Like, for instance, philosophy, what kinds of examples? It could be philosophy, it could be also computational social science. So, for example, uh, when, when uh, so there was some research, I've forgotten where I read it, about it, but it was some research suggesting that if, if people flee, if, if feel more clean they, or hygienic, they tend to they tend to vote uh, for left parties. Uh, that was just, it was some kind of correlation. And uh, for stuff like that, you could use, uh, or to detect, uh, you know, whether people are feeling more hygienic or not, you could use NLP. And you could use, you could, you could, you know, and you could go more deep into that kind of research using NLP. Uh, they didn't use NLP, so that's why they just identified that, the, the correlation, but they couldn't figure out why, what the mechanism of causality was. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of what I'm going for. Sure, yeah, yeah, so, okay, NLP is uh, very rapidly advancing. So if you take NLP from five years ago to where NLP is today, much, much different, very, very advanced, but it's still not at the stage where you could really, you know, think of these broad ideas of quantifying humanity or quantifying human behavior at scale. Okay? So, uh, right now, a lot of these, you know, encoding mechanisms or a lot of these advances in NLP are being used for understanding behavior. That's true, but it's a uh, it's slightly, you know, you should be cautious about that. So they're not at that level that can really understand nuances and uh, the way you know human speech can be can be understood. Like you know, our human brains can can process and understand uh, natural language. So, so they can do, I mean, the, the, the advances at the current level are already like really uh, impressive compared to what they were five years ago, but they're not really anywhere close to making, for instance, a philosophical argument or kind of trying to uh, decode, uh, you know, if uh, a philosophical thought or things like that, I think are still, uh, uh, I mean, way in the future. So they're not, I don't think NLP is right mm -hmm. now at that stage where you can make those uh, uh, use cases. What do you think is the way to that to reaching that state? Do you think um, that that way, we, you know, do you think it would be sufficient to to let computer scientists, um, uh, you know, pave the way, or do you think uh, more, you know, so you're a computational social scientist uh, on top of your background in com computer science, and you you have a background in data mining as well, I think, and I think other people who who are getting involved in this field include like economists and mm -hmm. psychologists, but they. Uh, uh, they they are 
they're not at the forefront right now. At the forefront, we have typical those typical computer scientists and some applied mathematicians. So yeah, do, do you think that this balance of profession works right now? Do you think it's optimal, or do you think we should change the equilibrium state? Sure. Yeah, that's a very good question. And so, so you know, for the there are multiple parts to it, right? Like the first is uh, this field of computation, social science, is quite new, uh, maybe a decade old or slightly a bit, you know, around that, and it has been rapidly developing. And uh, the the main idea behind this is that you know you now have all this big digital uh, data that is available that you can apply for social science problems, and and by by definition, it has you know com com computation as one part. And social sciences are the other part, right? Like computation, social science, and and so right now, like you said, like the computer scientists in there are leading a lot of the advances in there, uh, and you know, slowly catching up. These other disciplines are slowly coming on and catching up to this field. But right now, it's all been you know com computer scientists who are mostly leading this field, and that is both good and bad. Like I said, you know, earlier, these advances in natural language processing or computer vision or uh, any of these are like massive. They they really have changed the landscape completely. And to a large extent, this is all led by computer scientists, right? Like and now we are able to apply some of these in computation social science because of those advances. But but the problem there is, you know, computer scientists just tend to think of you know this from a computational perspective, which is again becoming a big issue. So there's lots of advances, for instance, in face recognition compared to 10 years ago. Now it's like, I don't know, 10,000% better. You really can do a lot, lot, lot more. But then, you know, they they don't capture, for instance, uh, minority communities, right? Like the training data sets are not properly created. And computer scientists don't think of those sorts of issues in creating these. And, and so I, I think, you know, we are at that stage where, for instance, now there is a special field that has come up. It's on you know, ethics in AI and, you know, fairness in machine learning and things like that. It's again developing in parallel uh, uh, to this sort of machine learning, AI, computation, social science kind of field. So I think the right balance will be, you know, down the line. Probably, you know, computer scientists will still be uh, in there, but again, like some people will, like me, will uh, get more uh, immersed in the social sciences. So I have a complete training in computer science, but you know, ever since I've been more and more interacting, working with people from the social sciences, and so I now have some understanding of the way they think, and so. When I think of problems, I try to frame it in a computer computational way, but also think of okay, what would a social scientist do in this setting? Right. Like, so uh, I think you know the field is slowly moving towards that direction. Right. Like, okay. So if I take my own, so I was uh, a few months ago, I was studying a course in applied computer science. So it's so first you have the introductory course in programming. So that was just a basic Python course, and then we moved on. It, it would be equivalent to the you know CS50 course by uh, by Howard. So, um, so there were some people who were more inclined, you know, you know, they had read social science before, or, or yes, yeah, some of them had a background in linguistics and stuff like that. So, when we learn about Hamming distances, for example, they they saw that as, or they they saw that that could potentially be used in, for example, um, social sciences for you know when. When like in NLP, for example, when you know comparing the difference between the meaning of one sentence as compared to another sentence, and and you know that could be a way to, uh, uh, of letting a computer quantify the the difference in meaning. Or yes, mm -hmm. you get my point. I think. Um, but right now, when you when you so you say that you so you work at the idea IDSS at MIT, so they have 
a lot of people working, um, many like uh, electrical engineers working with systems, but they but they apply it in a more broader context. But then, uh, so, but I, I, do you think, I don't know if I'm correct, but I think that that way of working isn't that common. And I think a lot of like face recognition, for example, that's just, so we, there was some data, so there was a lot of theory, computer science theory, and then the computer scientists, they, they decided, okay, we will use this to develop face recognition. It wasn't, and then afterwards people came and, uh, there were ethics issues, but the actual ideas are always constructed by the computer scientists. Um, so, and you you said that okay, you, the 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 field will shift more towards uh, uh, you know uh, let other sci scientists, other kinds of scientists come in. So, uh, you know after, but that's after the fact, right? It's after the actual uh, constructions have been made. For example, face recognition. So do you think, or do you, do you think that other types of uh, scientists should, should come in earlier in the processes? And how do you think that uh, we should go about it? If so, sure. Yeah, that's again a really important, really great question. And I think uh, this sort of model is now being developed, right? Like, so a lot of people are testing out these sorts of models, uh, like the model of bringing in people from other disciplines earlier, earlier on in the pipeline. And like you said, right, like if you had a CS course with linguists, with uh, other like political scientists and so on, they really see these techniques that can be applied in these other fields uh, that as a computer scientist, I might not know that, you know, there's this field of, uh, I don't know, migration where you can apply some of this uh, data or these techniques too. But because they have that domain expertise, uh, you could really, I mean, they can really think of that and, you know, maybe work in collaboration with some of people like us but can actually, you know, advance that field towards a more computational side. So right now, that's, that sort of thinking is really very pervasive across the uh, academic space. I mean, I've been interviewing at a lot of places for like, you know, faculty positions now, and you know, that's a common theme. Like people really want interdisciplinary uh, uh, research centers. And again, this IDSS, the Institute for Data Systems and Society, is one such experiment. So the idea there is to bring together Oh, these electrical engineers, computer scientists, political science, psychology, business people, and so on, and create this sort of ecosystem where they can talk to each other, work with each other, train students in that way, and so on. And there's a lot of schools uh, all across the you know all across the world that are trying to do this now. And I think that's going to be the future, like where you know you really will bring in domain experts, like people who are trained in these other disciplines give them a basic training of uh, computational techniques. On the other hand, you also bring in the CS people, but then give them some training in the social sciences, bring them all together into one program or one curriculum, one course. And I think that's where the magic will happen. And a lot of these kinds of issues that right now we are facing, right? Like this face recognition example where CS folks led the, led the bandwagon, but then led to some issues. I assume, like, if you bring in all these other people with philosophy, ethics, and you know these other disciplines earlier, earlier on in the pipeline, these will become part of the, the systems, right, that are being built, and people will think about them from earlier on. So I think you know that's already happening quite a bit, and you know I guess you know people like us should be like, people who are in the CS uh, community and you know want to think about these problems. Uh, I, being aware of that is already a great thing. Mm. Yeah, and so one critique that I've heard from people who are who, who don't have a background in in um, CS or math 
they usually, or sometimes they say that math and CS isn't that useful for, for their own, for, for them, uh, you know, in order for them to advance in their own field. And they sometimes say that, that math is like inventing the wheel again. So they have to, uh, so, so they think that their own way of thinking is so effic efficient that they don't need to, you know, to rely on uh, learning a new axiomatic system, just like math to, you know, build up on first principles and to, you know, because that's slow. And, uh, but, but on the other hand, you know, people in, you know, who have a background in CS and math, they, they think it's, uh, they don't think that way when they get exposed to social science things and biology uh, related things. So I, I was watching a, a, it was a presentation uh, organized by the Broad Institute. And I think they are just a few minutes of walking distance between, uh, away from the IDSS. And they and yeah, they were talking about how NLP could be used in um, singles. Uh, you know, uh, the way so when you uh, in transcriptomics and single cell data analysis, uh, you know, at one stage you have a certain kind of oh, when the you when they have conduct transcriptomic analysis, they have a certain diagram that they look at. It's just like word to wake, but a bit different. But it, yeah, it could be compared to word to wake. And then uh, when you embed, uh, when you make data embeddings uh, of words and documents, you you have a similar diagram, and that's why. And they they argue that you could use, uh, yeah, that's why you could use NLP in single cell data analysis. And similarly, Fibonacci numbers could be found in tons as well, and that's another example of mathematics in other areas. Do you think that this kind of quantification is? Effective, or do you think that the social scientists are right? That it's just a slower way of reaching the same conclusions that they have already reached a hundred years ago. Uh, so it's both, actually. So I don't think there's a there's a right way of doing this. So it's like so, so like like you said at the end, right? Like so, there are certain theories that social scientists have come across, like have, like have you know debated and then decided on hundreds of years ago. That now that you know we have the data. Computational social scientists are now testing things like, you know, there's, there's this thing called uh, Dunbar's number. And so in the social sciences, based on like really, you know, the size of the human brain and how many friends you can have on a social network. So this was invented in the 90s before any social networks were popular. And the, the person, Robin Dunbar, is based in Oxford. He said, okay, people can have at most 150 friends, right? Like, and so... People have now, and you know, fast forward 25 years, there's Facebook. Now we know, you know, how many friends people can have. You can measure all these on online social networks, and now we find the same, right? Like so, the the theories that uh, that people have come up with, like even even there's also a lot of these sort of strength of long uh, weak ties and and other theories in the social sciences where came up. People invented them in the 70s that still uh, hold now, right? Like, so it's not that, you know, one field is better than the other. I think there's, there's you know, cross-pollination and that sort of cross-pollination will lead to advances in sciences. And then those two examples that you gave, uh, especially the, you know, uh, people getting uh, inspiration from uh, the word-to-vec kind of techniques and using that uh, in uh, biology or these adjacent fields uh, is probably just... Uh, sort of cross-pollination. I don't think, I mean, so in, the, in that specific case, it's just that they were uh, inspired by that method, right? Like you could encode information from text in the same way you could encode information 
in in cellular data, right? Like so, that's kind of what the inspiration was. But I don't, uh, and then the concept just transferred. Uh, but uh, that's it. Like there's no. Um, uh, it's just because you know some some someone from uh, you know this NLP field and someone from this biology field were able to come together, talk and kind of come uh, you know make this our inspiration. You go to yeah, like you said, you know, there's these things in nature that inspire mathematics, right? Like, so it, it's the other way uh, the inspiration goes. So I think it's just it's just a natural progression of science, and you know, when these things happen, you you advance your fields. Uh, could be either fields, or could be one of the fields, or not not any of those fields, and so on. So I think it's uh, it's the, I think this is a natural progression of science. But don't you think it? Okay, so uh, okay, if I take a more if I take another example, which is a bit different. So I was watching a, this Sunday, I think there was a documentary on some, some, uh, uh, there was a documentary that I was watching there where uh, mathematicians were using chaos theory to, to, uh, um, to analyze financial markets. So to predict, uh, to predict uh, uh, the price of commodities and to use uh, data, you know, for uh, other kinds of data like social science data and uh, data on on stabi uh, stability in terms of bar in different countries, and they were linking that or, or they were using that to predict uh, how the, the prices in commodities would change, and and they were competing with because um, you know every, they want to make money and they were competing with the regular business folks who didn't have any any you know any uh, advanced uh, background in mathematics. So they were just using simple traditional theory from economics and business in order to make their decisions. And, uh, and they were competing quite well. You know, the competition was, uh, it's not that I, like any one of those two were dominating, but the mathematicians I think have, they would have studied a bit more in uh, more in, uh, at university. So you know, the mathemat mathematicians were most often uh, postdocs or professors even. But the business folks, they usually they had just you know studied three years, four years uh, at university, and then they were competing. So that could be an, uh, people could some people see that and they think that okay, mathematics and quantification is usually uh, not, not as efficient. But others say that no, it's uh, you can't deduce certain things by yourself uh, with the human brain. You need computers to deduce for you and compute for you. So yeah, where do you stand on that? Um, I, I guess yeah, it's a it's not a trivial question to answer. I don't think you know you know quantification or somehow uh, formalizing everything is a is the right way to think of things. There are certain things that. Cannot be formalized or cannot be, you know, expressed in the form of an equation or, you know, written down. Uh, and and I guess, you know, there's no, um, it, you know, experience working in the field and you know the kinds of stuff that you learn uh, while you're working in, with these financial markets and with, with business and stuff is. I don't think there's an equivalence between have you know having been in the uh, university for 20, 10 years and then comparing that with uh, someone who had just a four-year experience. In the US. I don't think. I mean, those things are apples to apples comparisons, and I think it's. I mean, the example that you gave is one way where you know someone invented a specific thing that worked fine, like you know that could transfer from a research idea or an academic idea into something into practice. But um, I don't think it's it's the usual. Like you cannot generalize on that and you know say something generic about that. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so well, if we turn to a different kind of question, which of these these topics have so we talked about NLP in transcriptomics? We talked about chaos theory in, in financial mathematics, and you talked about computational social science. Um, which of these ideas do you think or do you find most exciting? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I am like my background now or my research interests are in computational social science, and you know, I try to explain why this is going to be a big thing, right? Like, so this sort of intersection of digital advances, like the data that we have or the computational techniques, if you marry that with all these real world problems in the social sciences, I think there's a huge scope, like, and this is kind of new, right? Like, so all this access to all the digital data or the computational uh, advances are quite new, like in the last you know, two decades or so. So I think there's lots of scope for that uh, going further. I think, I mean, it's also, I mean, this is something that I personally prefer because this is my research area and I chose this, but it doesn't have to say, you know, it's not like a ranking because these other things are also really important. I think basic research in the sciences is, is much, much more uh, important. I mean, what I'm doing is much more applied and, you know, you just you know, are combining these two. It's to some people, it may not be even like really considered basic research, right? Like you're not really inventing a new theory or anything, uh, at least to a large extent in my field. Uh, so yeah, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's no way to rank these personal preferences for sure. Like I, I prefer like the sort of you know, computational social And why did you choose this area? You, you could have gone into so many other things as a computational or as a CS uh, uh, person. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think the the applied nature uh, of uh, some of these problems, and uh, you know, you really can find an application and use some of this uh, these methodologies to try to come up with a solution. And there's also the sort of pipeline where you know, if you have if you take a real world problem, right, like let's say fake news or misinformation, right, like and then you develop some sort of solutions for that, it can easily go. And you know, reach people. It can be applied to you know by some of these companies or by NGOs or whatever, and it can really reach people. So you're you know that there's a sort of instant uh, way in which you take a problem and can potentially devise quite impactful solutions. I think that's very uh, 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 very good uh, for a researcher to have this sort of an impact uh, immediately. Uh, there are other fields where you know the impact might be you know ten years down the line or you know fifty years down the line, right? Like so, but this field at least is so rapidly moving, and a lot of stakeholders are invested in this field now because it's so uh, new and so exciting. That there there are these sorts of immediate uh, benefits that come, and you know, that's that's what uh, makes me excited. So let's take your your work in uh, uh, with WhatsApp in India. Um, how long do you think it will take, or uh, are you involved in getting it implemented in public policy? And uh, if so, how long do you think it will uh, take for it to be probably properly implemented? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, there there are various aspects to this, right? Like, so public policy is one uh, way of impact. The other way is technical implementation, right? Like, so if WhatsApp actually implements this. That's one. Uh, there are other ways in which you can do so you could do societal impact or whatever like so there's various ways in which you could get impact so for instance take the work that we're doing with whatsapp so one of the things uh, there was uh, you know one of the solutions that we proposed for reducing uh, misinformation is uh, reducing virality so you know you don't make things spread virally so you can you know put caps on that 
And WhatsApp actually implemented that. And I, I mean, I cannot claim a causal link to my research to that, but it could have played a role. And we know, like, I mean, we talk to people for WhatsApp. And so we know that, you know, there is certain, they listen to what we say or they read what we write. And so, and that's a, that's a clear, quick impact, right? Like, so now we're working on, you know, the sort of end-to-end encrypted settings. So WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. Uh, how do you deal with, uh, you know, misinformation or rumors or hate speech in such such settings? Um, I'm assuming, you know, a lot of people uh, will read about this, like both in the policy circles, but also in the tech circles or also in the NGO circles. And it will put pressure on both, you know, the sort of uh, public policy, but also from the technical side. Right? Like, so I think these are really clear examples, which are very hard to have such quick impact uh, in some of these other fields, like, you know, very theoretical computer science, for instance. Hmm. So previously, we talked a lot about interdisciplinary research, and and that often implies data linking. So if if we were to make your your project in India even more <laughs> more interdisciplinary um, and, you know, link that. So, so if, you, if you were to link your NLP data with, for example, biomarker data um, uh, in order to derive some marker for well-being or righteousness or anything else that could be used in, in, in public policy, for example, what, what, what do you think about the potential of, of, of this kind of data linking? Um, yeah, I think this kind of touches upon some of the things that we mentioned earlier. So, so one thing that we need to be really careful is just because we can do it, we should think of should we do it. And mm. and 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 given the the state of the art at this space that I'm aware of, I think it's not it's not that great. Especially you know if there is this potential that this could be you know have an impact on public policy or things like that. Like so, it could definitely be misused in the wrong way. Right. Like so, I mean there are these examples of. Uh, face recognition that I keep coming back to. So in India, especially in this region where we did our work in, in India, it's called Uttar Pradesh, north of India. There, uh, people are now using, I mean, the government is now using face recognition to identify people who don't wear a mask. And you know, that doesn't work well at all. Like, I mean, the, the accuracy of face recognition is really bad, but also, you know, detecting a mask is not an easy thing. And and they've been, you know, doing this automated thing. So it's it's really dangerous to a certain extent. And we as, you know, people who are advancing this field should be cautious. And I mean, if we say, okay, let's do this, then that somehow kind of green lights this or gives the impression or the idea that this is a true area in which research is possible, right? Again, a lot of the, the cases where people uh, complain about, like, for instance, using your facial expression to identify your moods or things like that is a really... Uh, they're not universally uh, applicable, right? Like, so, I mean, humanity is really diverse and you really cannot take just a picture and say, predict there more. I mean, you could do it in a control setting, but that cannot be applied in the wild. And I think, you know, researchers like us should be really careful in advocating, like working in those areas because it gives uh, kind of that legitimacy to that area, but also advocating for that. Like right now you should say, okay, this doesn't work, don't use it, right? Like, so I think I'm in that kind of a port where uh, I pick and choose the kinds of problems that I want to work on and make sure that, you know, you don't, uh, it doesn't necessarily lead to a negative uh, impact. Mm. Okay, so maybe it's not that wise to, to, to implement this idea. But let's say we we, we implement it uh, either way. 
And uh, so, so you you have studied CS, and then I assume that you have also studied statistics as part of your your education. And I I, I hope that you're familiar with Bayesian uh, updating. So let's say that we would like uh, to use Bayesian inference to analyze the linked data that we gather. Would you agree that? And you know, previously we talked about social scientists versus uh, uh, mathematicians and, and CS. People, so would you agree that the social scientists would be equipped to derive the a priori probability distribution, and that the computational social scientists would be best at deriving an a posteriori distribution? Or do you think that it would be that would, that would be an unfair description? Uh, again, like uh, generalizing at the the field level is probably unfair, but I yeah broadly that that could be you know the right uh, uh, I mean. Yeah, the, a good way of describing these these sorts of fields, right? Like so, you know, if you're basing your observations on uh, uh, on you know uh, just theories, or that you could potentially uh, explain with some sort of uh, you know either neural or some model, and you don't have data for that, yeah, this is could be uh, akin to like an a priori distribution. But yeah, if you if you say okay, I have this hypothesis and I have this data, and let me come to my posterior distribution. Probably that's you know that's a that's a good way of describing uh, computational social scientists where you know you have the theory but you also have some data to uh, come to this sort of posterior distribution. Yeah. Right. So when when I've I've talked to people, people usually uh, feel like CS and math and similar areas are. So if we are, are like logically speaking more fundamental than social sciences, because they feel like, okay, so they have an explicitly defined axiomatic system and they use, they use that system and they you know, reason from first principles step by step in order to reach their conclusions and then they apply that. So competition of social scientists, they often work with discrete mathematics and stuff. And yeah, so, and I, but but in this case, and that, that that would be, and you know, based on that, one would maybe think that they would be more in involved in the in deriving the a priori distribution, because the a priori distribution is more fundamental on a logical in logical terms as well. And so, do you think do you think this this so so you said that it's okay, we can't generalize too much, but what we said is kind of right, uh, or yeah, it kind of describes how it is uh, right now, currently in the field. So do you think the, do you think we should change and that uh, CS people should, should be more involved in the a priori distribution as well? Or do you think we shouldn't think in these terms and just go on with our work? Um, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a good question. Again, like we cannot generalize that you know these fields are a priori, these fields are posterior. I think that 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 is a hard thing to do. I think the the answer that I gave is very specific to computational social science because the time trying to kinds of uh, again because it's mm -hmm. interdisciplinary nature reasons on both the a priori, but then uses some data to come to some posterior um, conclusion. So that that was kind of my answer. But uh, yeah, in terms of you know thinking about CS and and stuff like that. Again, it, it goes back to this uh, building of an interdisciplinary way of thinking, right? So, you know, whenever, if you're, if you're doing introduction to data mining, really you start with, okay, if you have this data set, this is what you do, or you apply these methods to do this, but then you don't 
think before that, like how was this data generated? Why should I use this data? Is this the right data to use or not? And some of those thinking comes from some of these social science problems, right? Like they are people who, you know, do the interviews, do the surveys, collect some of this data. I mean, it's again, a very uh, generalized way of thinking, but uh, that's, uh, you know, that's usually done in, in that space of the, of the you know, the Bayesian distribution, right? Like, so, so I think uh, if, we, if we want to encourage the sort of interdisciplinary dis, um, uh, thinking, we should have, yeah, CS people also go into that space, but also those social science people who don't just sit in that space, but also come into, you know, work with data, make these inferences and come into this sort of procedural world. So I think that's kind of a fair way of putting it. Right. Right. So we touched on, on, on data mining right now. And I think that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday, graph mining. And, uh, and so, and you're working at the IDSS. I, I assume that you are more familiar with the more, with the network perspective of IDSS, because at the IDSS, I think you've got a collective science group. And yeah, it's more of a network perspective on data, on, on computational social science rather than a bioinformatics perspective or some other perspective. So yeah, uh, could you, yeah, well, how do you, did you use any theory from graph uh, mining specifically in your work in, in uh, with the WhatsApp in India? No, not necessarily in that work, but uh, for instance, some of my earlier work uh, during my PhD was on uh, studying uh, political polarization of social media. So this is again, uh, a very social phenomena, societal level issue, like you know, this polarization increasing across the uh, spectrum in different countries all across the world. Um, and so uh, the way we try to come across this problem is by framing this as a network or a graph problem. So you look at, you know, uh, don't look at what people are saying, but look at how people are connected through as a social network. And that network is like a graph. And then you develop like graph theoretic properties on top of that graph, right? Like, so if you have uh, different opinions, how are these opinions connected in the network? And how does information flow from one side from, you know, some, like you have two opinions, let's say, how does this opinion reach these uh, people who have this opinion? And uh, so that is a graph theoretic problem. And then you can devise graph theory methods, right? Like, so you can say, okay, I will find these connections across these opinions that will lead to the maximization of the spread of information across the two sides. So that's a very theoretical problem that has some very nice, you know, mathematical interpretations. You could represent this as a matrix and then you do some matrix operations on this, but it has a very practical aspect as well. Like, you know, you could say uh, this network is a network of people and these connections that I make are connections between users. So the connections could be recommendations, right? So you say for person A who has this opinion, I will recommend this other opinion uh, in the social network. Right? So I think you know these are kinds of problems that you can do uh, using network science uh, or you know graph theory that have again a practical uh, application. Okay, so you said that you can use use matrix multiplication even. So do you? How does how do you do that? What, well, based on what uh, is it like thermodynamic theory that it's based on or no? I mean uh, all graphs. Are matrices, right? Like so, graph is nothing mm. but uh, you you can represent a graph as an adjacency matrix. So if let's say right. yeah, mm. uh, there are ten people in the network, so there's ten rows, ten columns, and the entry of the graph is whether they're connected or not. So any graph, any network is a matrix, 
And so network theory is the same as graph uh, matrix theory. So it's really, right. uh, I mean, if you if you get into those theory, it's like mind blowing. Some of the so all these things about you know about like page rank, right? Like so the Google page rank algorithm, like the way uh, Google search is ranked. Yeah. So yeah. that's has like very solid matrix theory behind that. So the mm. reason why it works and the reason why you can do it so fast is all behind. Like it has like a very nice mathematical like matrix theory behind that yeah this is really interesting if you're interested in that space so would it be so i'm not really that good at linear algebra but would it be compared comparable with like marco chains yeah, the, yeah the graph, exactly. uh, right mm -hmm. okay um okay so previously we, we we touched on statistics and the base and updating uh, and stuff um and you have worked with with uh, misinformation and uh, and stuff like that. So do you think? And right now you're using a lot of linear algebra, as far as I'm understanding. But do you think we could use more statistical theory as well? And because each and every one of us is using, we we, we could argue that our brains are using, or that we are using Bayesian inference when we mm -hmm. are when we are you know updating our our beliefs. And um, sometimes we learn, uh, and you, maybe you could identify like vicious circles of misinformation that maybe maybe misinformation, uh, the consumption of misinformation at one time would lead to the consumption of misinformation or, or an increased tendency of consuming mis misinformation once again, and you, know, and you know, correlations like that. What do you think about that? Um... I agree. I mean, I, I think uh, there there is a lot of like uh, different types of uh, you know both like statistical analysis, but also uh, a lot of like um, you know psychology and neuroscience that goes into uh, why people uh, fall for misinformation and why people share misinformation. I mean, there's lots of work at uh, uh, MIT, the Sloan School of Business. There's a professor named David Rand. He's a he's a you know, he works in like brain uh, neuro uh, science department, which is also in the management uh, school, and he has done a lot of research on like you know who falls for misinformation, what is their uh, you know why do they fall, why do they share misinformation, and and things like that. And one of the you know findings they have is you know people share misinformation because uh, it's this sort of uh, fast thinking, right? Like so. We are, you know, we get inundated by a lot of information on social media. You know, we see lots and lots and lots of content. And so we don't think a lot before we share this information. So they've devised some methods in which you can, if you, if you, you know, just let people slow down and think a bit before they share anything, the propensity to sh share misinformation reduces quite a bit. Right? Like so, uh, so I don't know, I mean, if this is a, a straightforward answer to your question, but the, the idea here is, you know, this problem of misinformation is both, uh, you know, it could be very statistical, so they, you know, it could model it as uh, the sort of, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, human behavior is to a certain extent uh, modelable, and that's what you know, we talked about earlier. But it has these sorts of underlying implications of, you know, the way people think and psychology and some of the other disciplines as well. Right, and then if we remain in the field of statistics, um... You, you, you. I think, yeah. Uh, if I remember, remember correctly, you had a sample size of three thousand in your in your work in Uttar Pradesh, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I heard you mention somewhere. I'm not sure that 
and this is you know a, a common notion that bigger sample sizes are always better. And I have discussed this with previous guests as well, and I asked them, do you think it's always good to learn more? And then, yeah, the, the, most of the time people say yes, but then people always find exceptions. And, and right now I spoke about wishes circles in information consumption and based and updating. Um, how do you reason around this? Do you think it would be better for you to have a bigger sample size or do you think it, it, there could be any problems with that? Uh, uh, yeah, so that, again, it's a very uh, context-specific uh, answer. So, you know, bigger sample size is not always better. Like, for instance, I mean, we are doing a survey now uh, uh, about COVID. And so there the sample size is 2 million. And it's really, really big. But, uh, you know, there are people who have much, much smaller samples that have very specific designs that can answer some of the questions much better than our sample does. I mean, our sample can answer some other questions that are much, much better than some other, you know, smaller samples. So uh, these uh, sample sizes and the way you sample are specific to the problem that you're studying. So there's no bigger is better is not necessarily the answer always. Uh, and it's again, also there are lots of statistical tools that can help you infer, like make inferences on even a smaller sample size. If you have the right way, I mean, if you design your, uh, collection, the data collection in the right way, even, you know, very small sample sizes can be really effective in making solid conclusions about the underlying phenomenon. Well, and now you, you, you talked about, or you mentioned David Rand, and he works at the Stone School, and I think your, uh, your supervisor, uh, postdoc supervisor, uh, Dean Nichols, I think he, he also worked there as well. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, did you learn anything in particular about the ethics of marketing. And I think marketing, you know, people have different approaches to marketing, but there is this computational uh, CS approach uh, is present as well. And then there are other business approaches, psychological approaches, but did, yeah, did you learn anything in particular from him that you would like to share? Sure, yeah, I mean, the, the there is a lot of, like, especially connected to the type of work that I do uh, in, you know, um, Dean's uh, work is, is on, uh, online advertising, right? And so that's one way of uh, digital marketing. Uh, and so online advertising has a lot of like uh, uh, benefits as well as drawbacks. So for instance, if you see what Facebook provides, the way they can target you know, very, very specific population. So, you know, they know uh, if you have a Facebook account, they know you can see what information they know about you. And even without you providing that information, they can infer to a very certain degree that you know you are a male of this uh, origin and uh, uh, you're interested in these things. Are you single or not? Are you married or not? Do you have a kid or not? So these things are you know very possible. And so they they have led to really revolutionizing the the way in which you can market, right? So a lot of businesses can now use that information to provide you with the right sort of information and not bother you with, I don't know, if I'm not a parent, I don't want to know about kids. So, you know, I don't, it's not like a TV ad where there's one ad for millions of people. And so that's revolutionary. But on the other hand, there's a lot of drawbacks to that, you know, all the sort of surveillance capitalism, right? Like, so it's all built on just gobbling up all this data without consent. So I didn't tell Facebook that, you know, infer that I'm single or I'm married or whatever about me. So how does that work and not? And there is a lot of research in this space that, uh, you know, either Dean or people in the marketing department at, uh, at, at Sloan have been doing that is really uh, eye-opening, right? Like, so 
and 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 some of that translates into some of my research where i'm working with people uh in the global south like countries like india and so on and you know how does uh, some of these algorithms that are developed and researched for in the case of the us how do they work in india and so on so i think some of these are definitely good uh, learning experiences mm and i uh, so you know dean eckles he 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 worked at facebook before so he obviously he has this online advertising advertising approach or yeah he he looks at that more um but then you know marketing so i think i saw some seminar from the stockholm school of economics and they they said that marketing is a lot about memory it has a lot to do with the human memory and how and ads are very much about how to make the consumers or the potential uh, consumers you know uh, 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 memorize your your company or your product or whatever and when i heard that you know then i i thought that okay so our emotions they act as a moral compass and our memories are to quite an extent governed by our our emotions and we write what we remember so do you think that and so here when it comes to you know we write what we remember then obviously nlp comes in so do you, is that the way his work translates into your work or is there any or, or is the is the the link or the translation of some other sort and what do you think about this link if 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 so um yeah i mean so uh, yeah it's debatable uh, like some of the stuff that you mentioned is is debatable like you know the the way in which marketing can influence your your mind is is not completely clear i mean it, 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 so for instance, a lot of like political campaigns right like this, i mean in the us we just came out of a of a big uh, you know election season and there's lots of research that shows that you know political advertising is not i mean it's not that persuasive like you have some prior beliefs and to a large extent uh people will not change their opinions because of political advertising so that's kind of a you know, well researched well agreed upon conclusion now so political advertising and and people spend hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars on advertising so uh, so that's one context where you know that you know political advertising is not something that changes your uh the, the way you think or the way you do a certain thing in real world right like so but there are other aspects where you know i wouldn't have bought uh, i don't know a certain brand of a soap but i bought it because i saw it in an ad or that changed my the way of thinking so i think these sorts of persuasive effects of of marketing especially you know digital marketing are not uh, uh to that extent that it will change the, the 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 complete personality of a person or the way that reflects in people uh behave in every way right like so it could change my my thought in the sunglasses i buy but it doesn't probably change the way you know that i am as a basic person so i think that connection between you know online marketing with uh my personality probably is a bit too far so i don't think that link can be easily made and i i think you know it's it's uh grounded in science so you know the marketing literature knows that you know there's certain things that can be done there's certain things that sorry for that 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 cannot be done so uh, i think this sort of a thing where you kind of uh uh you know change your personality i don't think and to reflect that in you know your complete social online behavior that we can mine again through nlp i don't think that's a that's that's a 
uh, that's an easy connection to make. Probably you cannot make that kind of connection. And uh, but 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 in that aspect, right? Like so, for instance, the the, the intersection with Dean's part could be in. Okay, now uh, I've seen this ad about uh, sunglasses, and no, now do I post? You know, if I post about sunglasses. Am I more likely to mention a certain brand or not? So you know, it could be this sort of very specific uh, uh, things where you know exposure to certain types of branding does that affect my behavior in that I express through my you know natural language uh, on social media or not? I think that sort of a connection, which is much much more specific, can be made, and I think you know, that's an interesting uh, area that can be uh, explored. Is if I understood you correctly. You you're not too sure about the potential of using NLP in in predicting people's behavior. Rather, you feel like it's more useful in analyzing people's behavior. Is that correct or? Yes and no. I mean, so uh, yes, predicting no, uh, analyzing yes, but again, not in a general sense. So not in like a wide range of of options. There's very specific ways in which. Uh, these things can influence, like marketing can influence a person's behavior. And 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 so that funnel is, again, uh, the amount of things that you can quantify out of these behavioral changes using NLP is, again, limited. So that's what I see. Right. So, yeah, your main argument is that NLP is quite limited and we can't, you know, we can't infer whatever uh, we want from NLP. But then in Dean's work, as far as I've understood, he uses a lot of regression, just basic regression. And... Yeah, and if you would like, if you would start off, you know, uh, if you would assume that everyone makes their decisions made based on a certain probability distribution, or you know, let's say that everyone has a certain kind of dice that they roll, and then they see which side the dice lands on to make the decisions. You know, even if we just assume that, we would be able to. It's not not good, obviously, but with some precision. Uh, predicts people's behavior. If you would just assume that, and then we could, yeah. And in when we use regression, we just uh, become a bit more precise. And it's not regression is not very precise uh, either, but it's a bit more precise. But then, intuitively, NLP seems like a bit of a more sophisticated uh, thing. Um, do you think NLP could be used in the same way as like regression is used to to see to like derive some probability distributions that different groups use uh, to make decisions, you know, yeah. Sure, I mean, yeah, again, this comes back to this idea of quantifying human behavior and human behavior is very, very, very complex. So you, um, I mean, regression, they kind of, any sort of regression assumes a background model, right? Like, so they say, okay, this is the uh, background model of human behavior and we're trying to fit you know, this regression to kind of measure what we have not uh, seen, right? And so, and that's one way in which you say you specify a model and you say, okay, this is our assumption, and you either validate that or you and and then use that to predict something. So similarly, NLP, the space is much much more broader, and so uh, the current state of the art for modeling natural language behavior, like human behavior using natural language, is a very, very, very high dimensional space. So you really cannot do this sort of like uh, the the current way of finding this sort of regression or fitting a model for that is again too, uh, too um, um, uh, not, I mean, underdeveloped. So it's, it's, 
it's not really that complicated. And again, like, I mean, I don't say, I mean, all these regressions, but again, they are a simplistic model that kind of applies maybe to a certain extent, but doesn't generalize to a large other set of population. Similarly for NLP, you know, it might apply to certain populations, certain languages, certain types of people, but not uh, uh, generalizable enough. But yeah, that's kind of my impression. Okay, so it's hard to quantify human behavior. That's the, the bottom yeah, line. that's the company. Okay, so but how how long do you think? Okay, so hypothetically, how long do you think think it would be it would take for us to be able to uh, measure how much autonomy a certain set of individuals are enjoying and uh, to to a satisfiable extent? Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I cannot say that because it's a it's a very hard problem. I'm I'm assuming. I mean. Anyway, I'm not a real expert in some of these areas. So, but uh, my personal gut feeling is that you know this is something that'll take at least a few more decades, if not mm -hmm. more, for you know, getting right. there. Right. Okay. So this also pertains to you know formalizing things, formalizing thought versus not formalizing thought. Um, so okay, let's say that in a few decades we can we can quantify this. Um, then it would be beneficial to have. At that point, identified a variable, a single variable that we want to to maximize without any cap, so that we can use that as a reference variable in public policy or in in marketing or, or whatever. So, do, when choosing that variable, if that point if that point ever ever exists, which uh, what kind of variable do you think we should choose? Do you think we should choose a a variable that has a natural cap, such as Autonomy, because you know we we can't maximize autonomy. Because if some a certain individual's autonomy is maximized, a certain person's you know the other person's autonomy is minimized. So that that's a, an example of a variable that, that has a natural cap. Do you think we should choose that kind of a variable or some other kind of a variable that would not have uh, such a natural cap? Um, yeah, this is a this is a really uh, tricky question. Again, it's very philosophical as well. So I don't think yeah, there's a there's a clear answer to this. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. Anytime you're 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 thinking of humans and kind of trying to think of you know levers that you can control or adjust that uh, maximize a certain group behavior, uh, at least at least you know, given the 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 historic uh, nature of some of these uh, these things that that do happen, it's it, it's not. It's not an obvious thing. So humans, again, like human behavior is very, very complex. And especially if you put together a group of people, uh, firstly, I don't think there's going to be this sort of one variable that you can control that kind of exists. So it's going to be a complex model that has some sort of nonlinear interactions between different variables. And and that's for one person, right? Like, and if you put together a group of persons, then or you know, community, or you know, if you want to do this at a, at a larger scale, I think it's a it's a really a tricky problem. So, so again, because each person has this very complex model, and you bring in different models of different people's behavior, right? Like, so uh, assuming uh, by you know in thirty years this is all figured out, like these models are figured out, but then trying to understand the interactions between these models. So, so I, I, what I'm saying is there will not be this sort of one lever that you can adjust that can uh, make kind of uh, generalize across uh, a, a group of people. So I, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a clear thought on that.
So if we so if the if one variable could not, you know, we we couldn't have one reference variable for such a diverse group of people. That's uh, okay. So so if we would like, do, do you think we could use quantification to drive how we should divide these groups of, groups of people to to assign or to let them assign uh, their own reference variables? So you know that's kind of the idea with different countries, right? So different countries have different laws, and you can choose. Yeah. Okay. So. The visas, uh, visa entries, and the 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 permanent residency acquiring uh, uh, methods are different for, for different countries. But roughly, we could say that people are kind of free to to choose which country to live in based on their preferences. You know, do you think we could divide people in in different groups and then assign different reference variables to to them, or do you think that's too too hard of a thing? Well. No, I, I mean, yeah, it, you know, it, we already do that, like like you said, right? Like, I mean, there are lots of ways in which we either self-select, right? Like, so the friends that I want to make are self-selected and they are very similar to uh, the ways I think. So and all these communities that you form, either your friend network or your know, colleague network or whatever, right? Like, so a partner network, things like that, we already self-select based on some of these other mental models. So, uh, and, and, you know, even now when we're talking about marketing or whatever, like, you know, if Facebook is advertising a brand of sunglasses to me, it's doing that to a group of people that are going to be interested in this sort of sunglasses, right? So I think that is already being done. And, you know, yeah, if we can sort of quantify the sort of human behavior and, and can come up with this sort of models for that, then I think there will be those approaches that kind of cluster together these mental models and then, group together people and apply a certain kind of treatment on based on that. I mean, the treatment is, sounds like a harsh word, but it's very similar to, you know, seeing an ad, right? Like, so that's mm -hmm. one person saying, I mean, a company saying, okay, I want to advertise to people who think in this type of uh, uh, an approach. So, yeah, I think that's already happening. Probably, you know, some of these complicated models can also do the same. Yeah, and so, okay, so if we just return to the previous question then, maybe I see a bit, you know, maybe I'm re repeating this question a bit much, but, okay, so if, if we can drive a reference variable that people people want to maximize in different, uh, among different groups of people, then don't you think we could see if there is some common denominator in that, uh, so uh, in that variable, uh, because that variable wouldn't be a single variable. That, that variable would be a variable consisting of different parameters. Mm -hmm. So do you think we could see any, or identify any parameters that would be, that would be common across all of these groups? And in that way, identify a single variable that everyone would like to maximize. Oh, I see. Uh, uh, yeah, again, like probably, yes. So if you, yeah. A cluster together similar people, then you will might have you know in this cluster you might have a single parameter that might represent or you know quantify be you know to explain the I don't know, variability of this cluster. Probably yes, and uh, yeah, I guess yeah that that should be feasible. In order to do that, would you would you use gas mining or would you use something else? Uh, again, that's a very complicated. Like human behavior is not probably understood so mm -hmm. it's probably going to be a mix of a lot of signals that kind of get there so it's uh, probably yes uh, i mean networks are going to be in there because you know, humans are inherently like social and you know we form networks and networks are everywhere so probably yes but again that's a very i think it's it's much more complicated than what we currently can think of mm -hmm. 
We say last question. You dealt with a lot of data in your project in India, and I, I, I know that you, you've done many other projects. So how do you deal with the legal aspects of, of data gathering? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the, there are certain uh, written and unwritten rules, right? There's a few things about uh, legal practices, like for instance, I'm getting data from WhatsApp or Twitter or Facebook. So they have terms of service that you abide by. Right? Like, so you say you don't you don't gather and release large amounts of personal data and so on. So that's the legal aspect. Then there is the ethical aspect. So as researchers, we maybe talk a bit about ethics and what you choose to do, what you don't choose to do. And that also, also applies to, you know, when you're dealing with large amounts of data. Uh, so again, there are processes for that. So there are, you know, ethical review boards at universities that kind of ensure that whatever research you're doing is, you know, has some sort of like ethics uh, related issues. And uh, so all these things, they tie together. So, you know, when you're going through, uh, you know, when you're thinking about like reviews for your project, so you, okay, you, uh, you defined your project, you want to operationalize it. First, you have to get these sorts of permissions, either, you know, written permission or some sort of, you just show to your university that, you know, you've done this sort of thinking, both in terms of legal, ethical, moral, and so on. Uh, principles before you go and do your research. So I think this is common practice. Uh, it, it should be even more, yeah, I mean, it's becoming even more and more mainstream and people are doing a lot more these days than what you know people did I know, 20 years ago. But yeah, I think this is a good, uh, uh, I mean, we have established practices for that. Okay, so you turned uh, to, to the university to get permission or did you turn to, did you have to turn to the government as well or, or to WhatsApp? No, uh, I mean, WhatsApp already has a terms of service, right? Like that's a legal mm -hmm. document. So if you, unless you don't break that, like you say you do something that's against that, you're legally safe. And there mm -hmm. are some ethical guidelines uh, by the university. The governmental probably, you know, again, all the, the governmental things are taken care of the university level. Like if, you know, government has a certain law or certain things that, you know, certain things should be done a certain way. I think that comes under like ethical practices. Right. Okay. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gaiman, for, for speaking with me. It was uh, an honor and it was very insightful. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks a lot.